You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. So good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to the United States Institute of Peace. Um, and welcome to this event, uh, to this discussion um, of Ukraine and issues surrounding their transition, uh, eventual transition after their victory um, uh, from a wartime scenario, a wartime environment, uh, to a peacetime environment that has challenges, uh, as we know. Um, we are very pleased to be part of the Democracy Summit that's going on across the street here at the State Department. Uh, this is an important event, second time we've uh, done this. And so uh, Institute of Peace is pleased to be uh, sponsoring this discussion. An important part of democracy, of course, is security. Uh, security has to uh, be there in order for other kinds of, uh, of values to, to be present. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, our panel here. Um, good, and uh, two of our panelists are from Kyiv, and I will introduce them uh, shortly, let me just say a little bit of, uh, of why we want to have, have this conversation and how the panelists uh, uh, fit in. Ukraine is going to win this war. Um, Ukraine is going to win this war as long as the United States and other allies um, continue to provide the weapons and the support that the Ukrainians need. Um, that has to be the first priority, uh, winning this war. Um, uh, there are other priorities, there are other issues, there are other imperatives, there are other values um, that we'll want to talk about here, here today. Um, uh, but I just want to be clear at the outset um, that, that uh, right now we're focused and Ukrainians are focused and the NATO alliance is focused. Um, and indeed, the alliance that the United States and others have put together in terms of uh, economic support and financial support, uh, humanitarian energy, all of that is going into winning this war. Um, and the Ukrainians um, are doing an incredible job doing that. So we're going to start off um, with two um, Ukrainians. Um, and, and they've got a great perspective on this. Uh, we're going to start off sh shortly. Uh, I'm going to come back to them. Daria Kalinyuk. Um, Daria is the co-founder and executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center. So Daria has devoted her life and career and focus um, on reform, all, all kinds of reform. When I was in uh, Ukraine um, twice, um, uh, when I was there in 2006, 2009, but then I was back in 2019, Daria... Um, um, was a, and still is, um, a leading proponent of reform on, across the board. Um, and you will hear Daria talk about what winning means. Um, what I've just talked about and how the Ukrainians are going to win this war, Daria has views about uh, how they're going to win this war. And she can talk about the, the, uh, the balance or the priority uh, of security on the one hand and democratic values on the other. Um, they're not in tension, as, uh, as Jorgen has, has pointed out. Uh, they are reinforcing. So that's going to be an important thing, and Daria has some thoughts on that, as does Alexandra Matvietschuk. Um, Alexandra uh, is the head of the Center for Civil Liberties. Uh, many of you will know uh, that the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. 
Um, and uh, Alexandra um, uh, heads that organization. And as you can tell from that description, um, cares a lot about civil liberties, uh, human rights, civil liberties. And again, there is this question of winning the war um, and civil liberties. And again, not intention, maybe balanced, maybe priorities, but that's an interesting conversation that we can have um, with Alexandra. Other nations, other countries have gone through this question, have, have tried to address the question of how to deal with both security on one hand, living in a difficult part of the world, um, and democratic values. Um, and it turns out Sweden um, has been thinking about this for a long time. And we are very pleased to have the defense attaché, Admiral Wikström, uh, from uh, Swedish embassy here to talk about how Sweden does this balance, um, how it sets its priorities. As we know, um, Sweden's been neutral for a long time. Um, and the events of the last year, uh, the events of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, have moved Sweden, and the Admiral can talk about this, uh, to a point where they are now on the brink of joining NATO. Um, and again, that balance, that, uh, uh, that priority between security and democracy is, is played out um, in Sweden and, and other nations. Speaking of other nations, um, we have Marta Kepping. Um, she's a defense analyst at the RAND Corporation um, and has studied this question across a wide range of, of countries and a wide range of situations. So Marta will bring a broad perspective um, and both the Admiral and Marta um, can, can focus on how Ukraine ought to deal with this. Based on their studies and their experience, um, they can talk about lessons for Ukraine, how they can strike this balance, again, with the focus on winning the war, but knowing that democracy, democratic values are going to be important. Finally, Jorgen Andrews. Um, Jorgen has, is, is a senior foreign service officer of the State Department. I'm pointing this way because that's where the State Department is. Um, and we borrowed him uh, for the last year um, uh, uh, to do this work for us on Russia and Ukraine because he has a lot of experience on Russia and Ukraine, uh, both in the State Department and in other parts of his career. So we're very pleased that Jorgen could be here, both as a part of our team here at the Institute of Peace, um, but also because, sadly, we'll be losing him sometime going back over to the State Department. He'll take some senior job. We'll all be working for Jorgen at some point at, uh, uh, at this. So um, uh, let me just, so the Institute of Peace, just to, to be, be clear, um, we were established in 1984 as a small organization. I was just describing to the Admiral how we've uh, grown. And now we're in this building since uh, 2011. And we're focused on conflict. We're focused on how to resolve, prevent, deal with conflict. Um, there's a conflict going on in this, in this world right now. And this is the one we're going to be talking about today. Um, so. I am very pleased um, to be able to just have this conversation. Uh, we're going to have a little conversation up here um, and up there, um, but we're also looking forward to any of your questions and comments. Uh, I know we've got people online, greetings, um, and uh, uh, Jacob will be able to take those questions and feed them into us, and so we will do that. So um, let me start, Daria, um, with you. I have to look up here. We also have Daria on our screen here. We're cheating. We got this down here, but you guys can see it up there. Daria, um, I have uh, made the point, um, but this is a lead-in to you, that Ukraine will win this war. Um, 
you've got some thoughts on kind of what winning means. Uh, there's, a, there's a military aspect, but there's a broader aspect, which I'd love for you to describe. Um, and you focused, you've been focused before the war, actually over the last nine years of this war, um, and in particular over the last year, um, on reform. And you have a, a good sense of how the two work together, what the balance may be, what the priorities are. But Daria, if I can ask you to give, your, give us your thoughts on winning this war and how, that, uh, how the democracy and security fits together. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Thank you for a great intro. Uh, good to be here with all of you. Uh, we have the vision of winning in a broad sense. So it's uh, obviously militarily way uh, and non-militarily made a way of taking over all Ukrainian territory internationally recognized um, uh, as of uh, 1991 year. Uh, but in addition to that, it's actually doing everything possible to prevent uh, Russia being able to attack Ukraine again. And by winning, we mean uh, that uh, such kind of security guarantee for Ukraine to prevent new wars would be, first of all, EU and NATO integration. Uh, second, uh, it will be bringing justice. And uh, we believe that winning without holding accountable uh, Russia and specifically Russian leaders and then regular war criminals for what they've done to Ukraine. Without that, uh, winning is not possible. Real winning is not possible. There is huge appetite for justice in Ukraine. It also means reparations. It means that Russia needs to repay all those damage uh, which uh, it happened, which, 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 which it uh, did to Ukrainian people. And uh, when we are thinking about the, this concept, this broader concept of winning, uh, and taking into account our need for the EU and NATO integration, we also mean rule of law and democracy reforms. Because part of the EU and NATO integration, Ukrainian people, Ukrainian government will need to do huge transformation, which includes first and foremost rule of law and good governance. And for Ukrainian people, uh, not just the fact of joining the EU and NATO is important, but also having clear reforms which we need to implement on the way to EU and NATO, EU and NATO integration is important. There was the social poll conducted by, by New Europe Center, which showed that about 75% of Ukrainians want EU integration done through complex reforms. So basically, we want reforms to be done. And out of these 75%, about 40, about 65% want anti-corruption reforms to be done on the way to EU integration. So this is important indication of the maturity of Ukrainian society, that we see that we need not just to win the war on the battlefield, we need, we need to win the war in terms of democracy, in terms of reforms and we already chosen what is our path our path is is uh, euro-atlantic integration uh, and uh, for for us and for many reform oriented people in government in parliament and in, in in civil society this is the powerful leverage which we are already using when in June last year EU decided to grant EU candidacy status to Ukraine it was a huge um, a victory in reform battlefield, I would say, 
Um, but this EU candidacy was linked to seven uh, recommendations which Ukrainian government had to implement for the next steps for the EU negotiations, EU accession negotiations. And many of these steps were already implemented. They were related to anti-corruption and rule of law, uh, particularly the uh, head of SAPO, Special Anti-Corruption Prosecutor Office, was appointed. The head of NABU was just recently appointed. It's National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. We are finalizing the judicial reform, which is uh, which is on the, on the proper track. Uh, the reform of the Constitutional Court of Ukraine is on, on the way. Not everything was implemented, but important, usually painful reforms for government were implemented despite the actual war and martial law which is happening in Ukraine. So this is the important indicator that despite the war, we are not uh, turning into the cows and absolutely... Uh, uh, country uh, where security is number one priority and and we forget about human rights, about democracy and about rule of law. Actually, anti-corruption rule of law institutions are working in Ukraine and uh, this is happening despite uh, there are still important uh, things happening on the battlefield. All right, perfect. Um, the, the, the description that you just gave of the work that the government is doing while they are focused on winning the war on the battlefield. You just described other actions that they've taken, uh, that the government of Ukraine has taken um, on, on reform. Um, um, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the anti-corruption work of, of the Special Anti-Corruption Prosecutor, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau. You, you've given a great description, uh, description of how you can do both, how you have to do both um, on this thing. And we'll talk about that, that balance. Uh, Alexandra, Alexandra, can I ask you uh, a similar question, again, from the um, human rights, civil rights uh, uh, aspect? Um, uh, Daria talked about the reform. Um, uh, human rights are an important component that have to be defended um, at all times. Um, it's difficult when there is, as, you, as Daria just pointed out, martial law right now. So there are issues that, uh, that uh, call, this, call this question. And I'd love for you to uh, both talk about what victory looks like, uh, what winning looks like, but also how the, the, the focus on human rights, uh, human liberties, um, democratic values works with, the, with security questions right now in Ukraine. In order to respond what the victories look like, we have to respond what this war is about. And this war started not in February 2022, but in February 2014, when Ukraine obtained a chance for the quick democratic transformation after a collapse of the authoritarian regime due to revolution of dignity. And in order to stop us on this way, Putin started this war of aggression, occupied Crimea, part of Lugansk and Donetsk regions, and last year extended it to the large-scale invasion, because Putin is afraid of the idea of freedom, which become closer to the Russian border. And this is very important to remember, because victory for Ukraine in this regard, it's not just to repeal Russian troops out from Ukrainian territory, restore international order, state sovereignty and deoccupied Crimea and other part of Ukrainian territories. 
But victory for Ukraine is means to succeed on a way of democratic transition of our country. And we have to win this value dimension of this war as well. And that is why it's very important to remember all this time that we are fighting for a freedom and democratic choice, for just for a chance to live and to build our country where the rights of everybody are protected, government is accountable, judiciary is independent, and police do not beat students who are peacefully demonstrated on Maidan Square. And we have to make this understanding our real practice. We have no luxury to concentrate it only on defense from Russian aggression. We have to do parallel this democratic transition, which is extremely difficult during the large-scale invasion, but which is necessity for us as a first state candidacy to EU. I will stop there. Thank you. Under a uh, very good point, you've both made the point about the EU, um, accession to the European Union. Um, and Dara, you described the, the seven tasks that the EU has, uh, has laid in front uh, of Ukraine. And you described how, how progress has been made. Um, US, the, the Ukrainian government has made progress um, on several of those tasks. There's more to do. Um, and uh, Alexandra, thank you for the emphasis on these values um, that, uh, that have to be maintained even while, um, as you both have pointed out, you win on the battlefield um, with support from us. Speaking of support from us and speaking of the European Union um, and Europe, um, Admiral, we would love to get your thoughts um, on, on this question, on this question of kind of the security and the values, democratic values, uh, Sweden demonstrates and, uh, uh, and has implemented. I'd also be interested in how Swedes um, have thought about this question in the last year. Uh, something has happened in the last year that has made some changes in Swedish thinking about security and, and values. Um, uh, you've got some uh, ideas on that, and there could be advice. Again, what we're trying to do is get from this discussion today advice for the Ukrainian government as it, as it moves forward. Your thoughts? Okay. Thank you, Ambassador. If I may, I would like to take you now on a journey. Please. <laughs> a historical journey, Swedish history lesson. Uh, on the development of the Swedish total defense concept that we had from the during the Cold War until what we have today now with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the war in Ukraine. Uh, if we start by, by in the Cold War, uh, the Swedish society, it was organized, it was legislated to support armed forces in the event of war or imminent threat of war. That was a sort of total defense concept. It was all about preparedness. I would say that Sweden was arguably one of the most militarized countries in, the West, in Western Europe. Uh, the total defense concept, it was systematic, it was well-developed well, over the whole period of the Cold War. We had a defense budget of 4% of GDP. We had 800,000 people uh, in the wartime organization. We had immense stockpiling of everything that we needed, goods like ammunition, food, drugs, medical equipment, oil and gasoline, things like that, to make sure that we should have um, endurance if we were uh, cut off in the event of war or things like that. So there was immense stockpiling. 
we had also what's we had it and we still have it, what's called total defense duty. That means that everybody between 16 and 70 were obliged to be called up to assist either in the military defense or the civilian defense. And that's still a regulation in Sweden. So that everybody is part of that. So the term total defense basically uh, denoted all activities. It was uh, all act uh, compromised both military, of course, and civil defense. It involved all the governmental agencies, it includes regions, communities, uh, uh, private companies, the whole industry was, a sort of, was supposed to be able to sort of war foot, and also down to the individuals. But it, what it did, it created cohesion, it created coherence in society, because everybody was part of the total defense concept. Uh, but then, of course, uh, the Soviet Union fall, fell, war support fell, and, and the total defense concept was basically scrapped. Mm. And there was no enemy anymore. Enemy anymore. I mean, during this time of eternal peace, uh, it was more about how the armed forces could support the civil society and, and vice versa. So the military capabilities were used to assist civil society in, in, in extreme weather like flooding or looking for missing people and things like that. It was not anymore about how the civil society could support armed forces. Stockpiling went away, we went into just-in-time economy, uh, vulnerable to disruption, of course, because we had this just-in-time economy. Electronic communications were not set up anymore to, to, to operate in warlike conditions, so it was sort of a, in the era of eternal peace. But of course, the annexation of Crimea in 2014 had changed it all. So if you read the Swedish defense bill from 2015, it talks again about the stronger defense. It talks about the total defense concept again, that we need to get back to the total defense concept. This was, of course, reinforced in the defense bill in 2020, even more, more defense spending, more focus on total defense. We need to get back to a, a, a good total defense concept. And of course, um, the brutal invasion of, of Ukraine in February 22, this also accelerated this process and put in more of a sense of urgency in the, in the Swedish society. Uh, so if we then compare this, what we could call the new Swedish total defense concept with the old one, that one we had during the, the Cold War, I think this is, it's still about, of course, creating coherence. It still has a whole of a society approach. That's nothing different to that. But maybe it's now more about resilience than preparedness. It's more, more about creating resilience in society. Uh, than the, pre the previous total defense concept. And, and, and my call, the society has to be resilient and prepared not only for full-fledged war, as we did in the, in the, during the Cold War, because the, the threat is different now. There's no sharp boundaries between peace, crisis, and war. Uh, the threat is multifaceted. You've got sub-threshold hybrid threats like cyber attacks, influence operations, sabotage, terrorism, espionage, including industrial espionage. Uh, so it, it's another threat today. So we need to make sure that there's resilience against these kind of threat, the sort of sub-threshold hybrid threats in society. So there have been taken some steps in that. Uh, of course, information security, cyber security is important. So we have established a, a common cybersecurity center with uh, several agencies and authorities are involved in this one. It was created a year ago. 
for the cybersecurity, but it's also uh, psychological defense. I mean, now, uh, which has to be adopted to today's condition and, and contributes to safeguarding of, of uh, free exchange of knowledge, uh, information within an, open, within an open society. So we also created or re-established, actually, because we had that feature also in the, in the, during the Cold War, an agency for psychological defense. Uh, but lastly, I would say that the, the Swedish total defense concept is not only about defending territory, defending borders, it's also defending and protecting the values that form our society. We must be able to defend and protect uh, human rights, freedom of speech, democracy. That's also part of the, of the total defense concept. And once again, it's all about creating coherence, cohesion in society. I think I'll stop there. Admiral, let me just um, ask you to elaborate a little on that last point, um, which is uh, how total defense encompasses both the, the security threats, um, and as you've mentioned, since, since last February, the threat has been evident, and, and Sweden has made some big changes um, in its policy um, toward NATO and, and uh, neutrality more broadly. Uh, uh, talk a little bit more about, about Sweden and more broadly European um, attitudes and, and examples, lessons for the Ukrainians in terms of bringing, squaring that circle, but having both the, the hard security that is needed to be there, the hybrid security on the, the, on the cyber, for example, as well as the values that, that, uh, that Sweden and Europe are, are protecting. If, if I may start by correcting you. Please. Uh, we were neutral until we joined the European Union, then became military and non-aligned. Very good. Yes. Very good. So we haven't been, Thank you. We haven't been neutral all the time. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, coming to, yeah, yeah, sorry. Coming to your question there, um, um, as I said, it's, it's about cohesion, it's about coherence, but it's also about keeping the democratic institutions. If you have a well-established democratic, if you have free elections, you have freedom of speech, you have a free media, you have independent courts, that is the sort of foundation where you can build your total defense concept. That's sort of framework for, 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 for a total defense concept. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Of course I meant NATO. Uh, sorry, sorry. Sorry. No, I'm glad you pointed this that's out. That's something I always have to point no, out. No, no, no. That, that's uh, very good. Uh, Marta, um, so we've gotten kind of the European view of this question, the question of both the security and, and democratic values. You've studied these issues across, around the world um, from your research, from the uh, work at RAND. Um, what advice do you have for the Ukrainians? Yeah, so let me start with some of the, you know, I've specifically looked at the Baltic states and the Nordic, Baltic region. So, and we already, already just had a really good introduction of what total defense is. Total defense. But really, from, from, you know, from lessons from the Baltic states, for example, we talk more about comprehensive whole, whole societal defense or approach to defense. And I think that is probably a very relevant um, aspect to unpack for Ukraine. Um, because so, although Baltic states, um, s there are differences among the Baltic states, but I will generalize. Um, you know, in in the 90s, they were looking towards the examples of non-aligned countries like Sweden. So you know, looking at sort of more total defense aspects and how to build their their defense uh, in general. But now, and the the thinking had, didn't change in 2014; it changed earlier. 
um, you know, the cyber attacks in Estonia, Russia-Georgia war, those were already sort of um, indicators for the Baltic states that they need to think more about the resilience aspects, re the resilience aspects of critical infra infrastructure, um, the resilience of national resources, national reserves, food, fuel, etc., but also the human factor, the human aspect, um, and the trust that you have between the society and the government. Uh, um, in addition to that, aspects such as we, 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 uh, we heard about um, fighting corruption, those aspects uh, and establishing legislation that supports democracy and democratic governance have already been part of the uh, reform processes in the Baltic states since they regained independence um, in 1991. So uh, it has been a long, long <laughs> working process that didn't really start at one thing, a simple point. Um, but having said that, I think uh, there are several aspects that I wanted to highlight from the kind of work that the Baltic states have been doing. Um, one is the emphasis and the the emphasis on identifying and be, being very clear on the chain of command, the civilian chain of command, but also the military chain of command. Uh, that is important during wartime. So having a clear division between who are, who are the non-fighting non population, who are the fighting population, uh, but also for the time when you, you, you do enter the transition process. So you can have a threshold, a clear line between the, the military, uh, the, the defense part of the uh, state, the security part of the state, and also the civilian management of, of the rest of the state as well. Um, the other part is um, the engagement with civilians. And here I mean individuals, groups of indi individuals, non-governmental organizations, but also private companies. Um, all three Baltic states have been working on it um, from educational efforts uh, that range from simply raising awareness of what defenses or raising awareness of how the, their own country work works, right, uh, so civic education type of events, uh, all the way to engaging with uh, civilians in terms of supporting their defense and also security systems. Um, then uh, working on establishing trust between the society and government. Um, I think it's relevant for all, all democratic countries. Um, but that is also uh, an important aspect, I think, uh, especially during reform processes. And there, Baltic states provide lessons in terms of, in terms of uh, good, but also probably some things that have not been working uh, as many countries. So those are a couple of things that I wanted to mention. And the last one probably, and very importantly, is also how to fight disinformation and how to work in this complicated information environment that we are in today uh, while maintaining a democratic country. And that is also something where the Baltic states have, have been continuously working on um, through their educational uh, programs, um, but um, also through you know, trying to maintain 
information and fighting the disinformation uh, aspects from Russia specifically. So a couple of areas, I guess, that's, that could be relevant for Ukraine as it enters transition process. Marta, very useful, very useful. Um, I'm going to ask Jorgen in 30 seconds, but before I do, Jorgen, um, uh, Daria um, and Alexandra, um, after Jorgen after, you know, has a couple of comments, I would be interested in both of your questions um, uh, for the Admiral, um, uh, for Marta, the Admiral on the Swedish experience or, or the EU experience more broadly, um, for Marta on, in terms of the Baltic experience, um, and, and whatever Jorgen has to offer as well. But if you will be thinking about, again, the, the purpose here is to, is to give any advice based on other experiences to Ukraine on how to manage this transition from the victory to a, uh, a democratic society. And so um, I will turn to you all both um, for some questions after I ask Jorgen Andrews uh, uh, this question. So Jorgen, you've been in the State Department as a diplomat, has uh, been here helping us think through these, these issues. And I know you've got some thoughts. We've already talked about some thoughts about the, the balance between the security and the values, the democratic values. Um, you pointed out that it's not tension. It's not tension between. They, these are consistent. These are reinforcing uh, aspects um, of a society, of a government, um, and relations to its people. So how, how should Ukraine think about this balance? Um, and what can we do to, to help that along? Thank you very much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, before I, offering some comments, I just need to give the usual disclaimer that I'm here in my U.S. Institute of Peace capacity, and nothing I say reflects the uh, policy of the State Department or the U.S. government. We're very glad to have you. There we go. Legal, legal disclaimer. Um, I think what we're talking about here is uh, once Ukraine has won the war, how does it win the peace? And uh, tying together comments made by, uh, I think, all four of the, the prior speakers, um, Ukraine, I think, has an opportunity to kill three birds with one stone, as we say here. So as Ukraine thinks about how it comes out of the war, as it thinks about the institutional arrangements it wants to create, um, it has a chance to, as Daria says, um, complete the reforms, because it already had a very robust reform program uh, underway before this latest uh, invasion by Russia. Uh, and it has a chance to do that in a way that lines up its institutions uh, and prepares the way legally and institutionally for EU accession. Uh, and then, uh, you know, third, if Ukraine chooses to adopt some sort of a total defense model, it can build that into these institutional arrangements here. And so if there's a tension, the tension is to ensure that whatever the, the total defense or comprehensive security model, if Ukraine goes that direction, that that doesn't somehow contradict some of the reforms and, and some of the, the institutional arrangements required in EU accession. And so, uh, you know, if we're talking about gratuitous advice um, that Ukraine has not asked me for, uh, um, I would say, you know, first, you know, follow the EU uh, a key, the, you know, the chapters in, in the key layout, kind of the, the, the basic institutional requirements, which of course reflect the values that's already been discussed. It, it kind of enshrines notions of rule of law and democracy and the, the, the civil rights and freedoms. Uh, and uh, you know, a key way in which democratic societies do that is they, they keep very separate and distinct, as the Admiral said, they keep their military authorities and roles and responsibilities 
distinct from their civilian justice law enforcement roles and responsibilities um, and institutions. And um, in almost every society, uh, as, as, I, as I wear my, my former uh, um, uh, re, uh, you know, reform and, and um, uh, assistance implementer, provider hat, um, looking across societies, um, you know, those that, uh, almost every society has something, uh, some institution that is a blended responsibility. So, for instance, in the United States, it's the Coast Guard. They have both military authorities and civilian law enforcement authorities. So that's not entirely uncommon, but I think for the EU accession purposes and for Ukraine's own winning the peace agenda, keeping those kinds of blended authorities to a minimum is, is probably a good idea. Uh, it makes it easier to keep civilian justice processes, uh, shall we say, untainted by military national security responsibilities um, so that information that is collected can be used in a court of law um, to, to reach uh, prosecutions. Uh, and so this has implications not just for the institutions but also for um, for intelligence streams. You know, the national security intelligence stream uh, is generating certain kinds of information that are useful for defense of the nation, um, but if those intelligence streams get mixed with civilian law enforcement uh, intelligence, then it can compromise the ability to, to find prosecutions, which of course could be important, uh, especially with the prosecution of war criminals and other atrocities. Um, I think Another piece of gratuitous advice would be to urge Ukraine not to create new institutions if, if it adopts a total defense model. Um, standing up new institutions is hard under any circumstances. Um, I, I say this as, as a point of pain. I have, I have scars trying to, trying to do that in various countries. Um, it, it consumes a lot of resources and time, and it, it distracts from a lot of the other good reform efforts that, that Dari and others have pointed out are, are still underway. And so, uh, if, if whatever the whatever system Ukraine decides to adopt af after the war as its um, mode of defense, uh, it's it's really good to not have to stand up something new. Um, I think the the you know the last thing I'll say is um, you know the admiral was very correct to point out that uh, the, the the kinds of threats that Ukraine faces in the 21st century that we all face are different. Um, the boundary lines between national security threats and internal threats are different. Uh, and so certainly there will be need for information sharing and cooperation between the civilian and the military um, justice and law enforcement authorities to, to fully protect the nation. Um, but to the extent possible, there needs to be very clear rules about the handoff of information and, and roles and responsibilities uh, you know, so that uh, you don't have this blurring of of who's responsible for that civilian justice and security piece. Uh, I, think, I think keeping that piece separate uh, and keeping the military focused mostly on external threats, um, but supporting domestic law enforcement, I think those are some of the, the key takeaways from, from some of the other experiences we've seen in, in total, total defense. Jorgen, thank you. So, Daria Alexander, I'm gonna to come to you in one sec. Let me just um, put a but a pin in two things, Jorgen, you just said that we're going to come back to. Um, one is this um, uh, keeping separate of the civil and military kinds of um, issues. Um, Marta talked about chain of command. 
Um, of course, the chain of command goes all the way up. There is one person in charge in Ukraine, we know it's President Zelensky, um, that has both. But then your point about keeping separate, I want to come back to because I'm interested in how total defense, um, comprehensive defense, um, handles this, and you hinted at this at the, right at the end, Jordan, about, uh, about how, to the extent possible, I think you said. But that's, you know, I'd like to explore that a little bit, Admiral, with you. But I want to, I want to give Daria and uh, Alexandra an opportunity to ask um, questions, make comments on, on any of, of what you've just heard, uh, but also to ask, you know, how does the Swedish model or the European model um, um, or some of uh, Jorgen's suggestions, how does it fit in with the political realities uh, uh, of, U of Ukraine today and tomorrow uh, af after the victory? Dar, you, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, well, it's hard for me to compare the station in Ukraine now and our transition from war to to peace uh, with what has happened during the Cold War in Baltic states and Sweden. Uh, first of all, because the war is still ongoing and it's uh, the largest military conflict Europe is facing since World War II. It means that we have about a million of people who are fighting this war, either in National Guard or in the army or in other security forces. It also means that many people are mobilized, many people are wounded, thousands, if not uh, uh, tens of thousands of people are wounded. And we will have to deal with uh, uh, veterans after they will return from war. So how to deal with them? They have to be integrated to society and they have to be uh, part of efforts on rebuilding Ukraine. Also, regarding EU and NATO integration, I would want to emphasize that for Ukraine, it's already decided. Sorry, it's a lot of sun in, in, in Kiev now, so I will move a bit. So in Ukraine, it's already decided. We want to enter NATO. And for us, entering NATO is part of the security guarantees that the new war from Russia will not happen again. We already had 2014, 2015, where Minsk agreement were uh, started, were negotiated. And this Minsk agreement were basically de facto winning time for Russia to prepare for the next phase of large-scale aggression. So our focus now is to prevent Minsk III, where when we will be led to the new large-scale aggression. And I have a 10 years old son. I don't want him in, 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 in eight years to be fighting this war in the trenches. I want to make sure that we are members of NATO and there are security guarantees for Ukraine. And membership towards NATO for us means also reforms of entire security sector reforms of the Ministry of Defense, reform of the army. Now we have the largest army in Europe, which has expertise and experience in fighting the real war. We have to take this experience, build proper NATO standard management systems into the army, into the Ministry of Defense, how we are 
let's say, deciding what we buy, how we buy, how we manage our uh, our, our troops. So all that is important part of transformation which Ukrainian society needs, but also which Ukraine needs in order to end NATO. So it's 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 clear for us. We understand that the threat of Russia will not disappear simply because Russia will not disappear, and we are sharing the the longest border with Russia, and Russia is absorbing slowly Belarus. So very very soon it seems to be that Russia will be also uh, in 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 the northern border of Ukraine and Belarus. What I think uh, and uh, uh, it's. Uh, uh, Interesting for me to learn more in in Baltic states is that their way of building their security after in 1990s was starting from history and from justice, where they had to ensure that if you speak Estonian, Lithuanian, Latvian, if you know Estonian, Lithuanian, Latvian uh, history, then you can be granted the citizenship. Unfortunately, when Ukraine didn't do that, and it led to significant problems, and I think that this historical reconciliation and returning our historical memory will have to be done in Ukraine as part of uh, dealing with society after the war uh, will be won. So I think these are key my comments as of now. Very helpful, uh, very helpful. Um, uh, so, Marta, on that last question on the Baltic experience, I think it would be useful if you have a, a thought on that in, in a moment. And, Admiral, on the NATO accession, you've given some thought to NATO accession. You may have some advice um, uh, for, for Daria and Ukraine more, more broadly um, uh, about that. Um, uh, Jorgen, you may, I know you've given some thought to this NATO accession um, as well, but hold on to those. We'll come back, back to, to Daria's good questions. Alexandra, same, same question. Um, um, you've heard uh, Marta on the Baltic uh, experience, uh, the Admiral on the Swedish experience, Jorgen's thoughts on, uh, uh, on, on transitions. Um, and some, some advice, gratuitous or not, good advice. Uh, um, any, any thoughts or questions for them that you would like to pose at this point before we come back to Daria's questions? I would like to return to the question of balance between security and civil liberties. And I have one comment and one question. Uh, when we speak about security, we speak about at least two dimension. When we speak about state level, and the current situation, the large-scale Russian aggression resulted in martial law and um, a lot of democratic institutions uh, were limited because of the security requirements. And our task as a human rights defenders is uh, to be aware that all this limitation uh, have been done proportionally. But when we speak about these restrictions, we speak about two types. The restriction which is based directly on law. For example, during martial law, it's prohibited to conduct elections. And it's um, uh, under very understandable that freedom of movement uh, is prohibited. And these types of restriction will immediately consult in, when the war will finished and Ukraine will win. But there are 
second types of restrictions, which is based on practice or different kinds of decisions um, on, on level of government or level of local authorities. And this is a separate, very difficult question when in post-war Ukraine to analyze and assess their proportionality and to cancel this restriction, which will not be withdrawn automatically. So we will have to return and to find another balance between security and civil liberties in post-war Ukraine. And this is a huge task to do. And when we speak about um, international level on security, international dimension, and this is my question is about because uh, now the, the discussion is um, concerned, uh, is, is connected with um, a military bloc. And I am as a human rights defender want to bring uh, to put the question a slightly different. How we people who live in 21 century will defend uh, people? I mean, do we have do we can to rely upon the rule of law? Or our security and human rights guarantees will be dependent only on whether or not we are living in a country with a, with a strong military potential or our country is belong to some powerful military bloc. And this is a question which worried me. Because when we speak about security on international level, it's not just about military blocs. It's about international system of peace and security who must effectively protect people against authoritarianism and the wars. And now the example of Ukraine showed that the whole UN system couldn't stop Russian atrocities. And this is not a norma. So my question is, will we able to start a cardinal reform of international system of peace and security on international level, on regional level, or like the further development of humankind, it will be to produce more weapons, to make our country more strong in military potential, and to create a powerful military blocks. Thank you. Alexandra, great question. I'm glad you raised this whole question of, of an international rule of law, an international uh, order uh, that, that prevailed, that, that, uh, that was in place from the end of World War II until 2014. Um, and that order was destroyed, or at least tattered by, attacked by, uh, threatened by the Russians and their, and their invasion. And your question is a great one. Um, is it possible to restore that order? Is it possible to revert to an international rule of law, as, as you put it, that would, that would ensure not just Ukraine security, uh, and indeed, not just European security, but, and, and, uh, but certainly US security, international security, global security, in, in some rule of law, some international order where sovereignty is respected, where territorial integrity is respected. That's a good, or, and you ask this question, it's the right question, um, or does it, is it gonna depend on, is your security, Ukraine security, and by implication, other nations on having a strong military or a strong military defensive block alliance, um, uh, or both. 
Um, I'd, I'd love to come back, and, I, and all three of our panelists will have thoughts on that. So we got, we got uh, several good questions here um, from, uh, <coughs> from Daria and Alexander. One is um, on uh, NATO security guarantee. Um, Admiral, you've got some uh, thoughts um, on that. Um, no Munich three. I think this is important, um, uh, Daria. That's a very, very good point. Um, and then she also had questions about the Baltic states. Um, uh, so why, why don't we do that? So NATO accession membership thoughts uh, for Ukraine. Uh, Admiral, you're probably in the best position to do that. And then the Baltic question. And then we'll come back to Alexander's two good questions. About, and I know Jorgen's got some thoughts on that. Good. Um, Admiral, you want to go first on NATO accession? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I must say that I would abstain of giving any recommendation when it comes to NATO accession. We're still in our own accession process. You'll be there. Eventually, we'll be there, hopefully, yes. And, and each and every process is different. I mean, our process, the Swedish and Finnish process, is different from the North Macedonian one. Uh, and now even the Finnish and Swedish processes are different, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, so, I can't give any recommendation. What I could say is from a military standpoint that, okay, you've got the political accession process, that's one thing, but you also have the military integration process that's parallel to that one. And it's very important, and, and this is why if you want to shorten the accession and integration process, make sure that your integra military integration is prepared as much as possible. That's when we, what we learned our lessons now from being a partner to NATO from 1994, that our interoperability was so high that so the military integration process was very swift and, and, and smooth. Now I think I leave the political accession. To so just one, um, Daria points out rightly that after the victory, uh, Ukraine will have the largest and maybe the most respected army um, on the continent. Um, uh, and NATO um, might do well uh, to have Ukraine as a NATO In this scenario, after the victory, um, Ukraine will have defeated Russia, which is one of the, maybe, is clearly the main threat that NATO addresses, is, is designed uh, to address. And so um, by this time, Sweden and Finland, after the victory, Sweden and Finland will be members. Um, uh, and will, what, what will be the argument um, in, in your view, putting yourself now as a member of NATO um, um, and, and Ukraine um, applies again? Um, um, and Dara has mentioned that it's, this, is, this is a clear direction for the Ukrainian people as well as, as, the, as, well as the Constitution, for that matter. What, 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 what do you anticipate? What's your guess about the response of NATO to, uh, uh, to Ukraine's membership request? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you again. Huh. I, I don't think I should speak on behalf of NATO. Okay, okay. Maybe I'll ask Jorgen to ask. Yep. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Um, Marta, Baltic examples um, uh, that uh, Daria asked about. Yeah, I think um, great, uh, great remarks on the applicability or maybe not applicability of the Baltic states examples. I think that, um, you know, what we're looking at, so early 90s Baltic states is really a transition from very long-term occupation at the end of which you have more of a civilian unarmed resistance rather than armed active resistance, right, uh, to 
peace to peacetime. We're talking about Ukraine, which will be a transition from wartime to peacetime. So already qualitatively different, uh, different situations. Um, at the same time, also Baltic states, essentially, especially its defense sector reform was started from zero. It was building from zero rather than rebuilding something or changing the way things are done. Um, so yes, there are differences. Um, what can be a one-to-one -one comparison, I don't even know, because I think that every, every case, uh, life presents us with new and new cases, new and different environments, different situations, so we can't really have a one-to-one -one comparison. Um, at the same time, the, uh, the reform processes that the Baltic states and also other countries in uh, northeastern or eastern Europe went through during the 90s, but it didn't stop there. Reform process, sort of democratic reform process, um, defense and security reform process, it takes a long time to do. So those reforms have been taking place all these more than 30 years, right? Of course, NATO and EU accession early 2000s sort of accelerated, gave them a purpose. Um, gave them specific you know, ways and requirements. Um, but, but really, it, it has been a continuous process. And I think that's one of the lessons, even if it's a sort of obvious lesson. Um, the aspect about the, the citizenship requirements, which I sort of put in a broader question of integration of Russian speakers, integration of other minor, ethnic minorities, um, it is yet another question. So yes, Baltic states put this requirement of you have to, you know, there's a, a test that you have to pass, uh, whether you're an American or a Russian or someone else who wants to become a Baltic citizen. It's the same test of, uh, you know, history, mm. uh, language, um, and things like that. Uh, you know, so yes, indeed, that is there. At the same time, as we know, uh, both Latvia and Estonia do have quite a big number of non-citizens who have chosen not to take the test. They do live in the country. Uh, it means that they're not citizens. They don't participate in elections. Um, but uh, I think that's uh, so. The, the citizenship requirement is only one aspect of. One, one small, quite small aspect of working with, uh, of how to work and how to include all of your society um, into an sort of inclusive governance and inclusive, inclusive democracy process. Um, so, and again, work in the Baltics is still continuing on that as they're working on their comprehensive defense and security aspects too. Um, and then I think some of the points that our speakers from Ukraine mentioned made me think about really the deterrent value of resilience. Um, so that is something that as a defense analyst, <laughs> trying to look at it, but we have actually not measured. We don't have a quantitative way of measuring what is the deterrence value of good resilience preparation. Um, but we can we can sort of conclude that there are you know, political aspects, economic aspects, societal aspects, very important, 
in addition to the military capabilities that do that could increase deterrent value of, of uh, the deterrent value of our resilient preparations. So avoid uh, avoid uh, you know another invasion. Avoid not only a military invasion but also use of gray zone activities against your state. So I think. Um, and I know I'm sort of beating my own drum because I do work on resilience, but I think that resilient, re resilience work, um, even irrespective to, um, let's say, resilience, essentially resilience, say, within NATO, NATO acknowledges the importance of resilience, but it is still a national responsibility. So that is a, an important part of work that Ukraine would need to do in its NATO aspirations, also EU aspirations. But I think it also has this potential deterrent value in the future as well. It, I'm sure it has a deterrent value. And I'm also sure that the example of the Ukrainians' uh, resilience, I mean, this is the definition of a year of resilience. Yeah. Um, Actually, may I add please. one yes. thing? So we talk about the examples of you know, Nordic countries and Baltic country, countries and what they have done that could be good examples for comprehensive a whole societal approach. Yeah. Actually, Ukraine over the last year itself serves as a really interesting example uh, from the point of view of how the society, um, how uh, I've looked at how civilians have come together and really worked towards um, Supporting their emergency services, for example, that is only part of the resilience yep. uh, questions that I'm talking about here. It's a very good point. We're learning. We're all learning from the Ukrainians um, uh, um, on, on resilience, on determination, um, on coherence uh, uh, as well. Uh, thank you, uh, Mark. So, Jorge, the big question. Uh, two big questions from Alexandra. One is the balance that you talked about, uh, that you talked about, and she she raised again. In particular, um, in you know, there's martial law right now in Ukraine. At some point after the victory, that martial law will be lifted, um, and then there will be elections, um, and then there will be the, the the constraints, the restrictions on movement in and out of the country will, will be lifted. That, that transition is what we're really talking about here, there. And, it's, and it's, it is a balance. It is a balance now and then after the, after the victory. But the second big question so, is on international order, on the international, and, and Alexander asked the right question. Um, uh, can we count on um, an international rule of law, an international uh, order that respects sovereignty and territorial integrity to, to guarantee or assure, but hopefully guarantee um, not just Ukrainian uh, security, but others um, as well, worldwide. I mean, we had that for a while, and it's, it's, it's now threatened, it's now gone. Uh, or um, is, is Ukrainian security going to be only through NATO? Uh, only through uh, defensive alliance, um, only through building up the military capability to deter and defend if, if necessary. Both of those questions, you get to go. So super quickly, as, as someone who um, had the, uh, the privilege of working on uh, NATO and Ukraine issues shortly after the, the Orange uh, Revolution, uh, I have been a fan of Ukraine and NATO for, for many, many years. And um, I think, you know, Russia's most recent invasion of Ukraine is prompting rethinking in, 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 and should prompt rethinking on a number of levels in a number of, of places. One is that NATO itself, I agree with Kissinger that the center of gravity of Europe has shifted east and Ukraine has an excellent argument coming out of this war that it has essentially defended Europe, it has defended NATO, it has um, reduced the, the capability 
of, uh, of, of NATO's primary adversary and has earned uh, that NATO membership through, uh, through its own sacrifice. And, and so I think there'll be a really good uh, argument to be made there. I think NATO, again, personal views here, um, but I think NATO in, in the 20 plus years uh, following the breakup of the Soviet Union, I think NATO had the luxury of viewing uh, expansion as, as more of a political question. And I think this war in Ukraine has, ha, will, will shift that debate and NATO will, will look at it slightly differently as a practical, real military uh, collective security issue. And in, in, that, in that space, I think Ukraine has, has a, a beautiful argument to make. Um, on Alexandra's question, you know... And, and Jordan, let me just, as, you, as you address Alexandra's question, um, uh, next will be an opportunity for people in this room to ask questions and people online to ask questions. So pre be prepared. Good so on Alexandra's question, I mean, she's, she's putting her finger on the exact question that is nagging everybody who works in international law and, and foreign relations. Um, I think it, this, this war points out an inherent... Um, issue inside the international legal architecture. The institutions that were created after World War II, uh, specifically the UN system, but there are others, um, were designed to manage, prevent, uh, uh, eliminate, or reduce the size of conflicts, uh, mostly among mid-sized and smaller states. But the fact that that system is based on the sovereignty of nation states, that, that the highest level of sovereignty is at the nation state level, the system inherently had no way to prevent one of the bigger, stronger states from essentially acting against the rules. And so Alexandra points out that, that that's the weakness here. And so what the international system has traditionally done when big states go outside the rules and impose their will on smaller states is we band everybody together. Sometimes we do it in formal alliances like NATO. Sometimes we do it in coalitions of the willing. Right now we're doing it by arming Ukraine and supporting Ukraine's uh, financial stability and humanitarian needs. Uh, but I suspect coming out of this, there will be a combination of things that, that making sure Ukraine is well armed to defend itself will be part of the, the mix. Um, but also figuring out what institutional arrangements need to be made, either in, in Europe or broader. And, uh, and of course, I hope getting Ukraine on a track for NATO membership sooner rather than later. Um, but there are a number of ways that, that states group together to, to deter or, or react to um, uh, the, the infringements on the international system of the larger state. Last point, just picking up on what Darius said about reintegrating all these fighters. There's a watch out for here, and I, and I say this based on the United States' own painful uh, lessons learned in, in history, but when you have a, a lot of military combatants coming back and being reintegrated into society, one of the, the logical or natural places for them to find work is as police, as civilian law enforcement. And from our own experience, we have seen that the training and the rules of engagement for soldiers are very different than the training needed and the rules of engagement for law enforcement dealing with situations with their own citizens, their own fellow citizens. And so um, it's, it, it, it can be very tough to retrain someone who's used to the military rules and, and the engagement rules to, to step into that civilian law enforcement role. And, and th that, that's just a, a challenge that I think Ukraine uh, 
um, you know, we'll, we'll figure out and, and overcome, and, and hopefully the United States and others can be helpful um, as they try to do that. <clears throat> Thank you for both. Thank you for both. Okay. Um, questions from people in this room um, for these three, but also for uh, Daria and Alexander on the, on the screen. I want to be sure we get those. Mike, um, and there is a mic coming here. Uh, <sighs> you, can, you can tell it's Mike behind that, that mask. is really there. Yes, there you go. Can I take it off? <laughs> Please, we can hear you better. Yeah, uh, Mike Jajic, uh, formerly of USIP, and currently completing a uh, study on intelligence reform in conflict-affected states. And it's very uh, perceptive of USIP to identify this as a woefully underdeveloped aspect of security sector reform. Everybody says you gotta do it, but we don't know how. So we have some thoughts on this subject, but um, the takeaway I get from this discussion is that we, the US, need to be prepared for doing security sector reform in Ukraine, so get ready. My question is, with regard to intelligence reform, what are the challenges that we would be confronting uh, for Daria and Alexandra? Uh, what are the challenges that we should be prepared to deal with in terms of intelligence reform? So Daria, Alexandra, I'm not sure you've got answers on intelligence reform, but you might. Um, and Admiral, you may have some thoughts on this one, maybe any others. But let me first, as Mike has uh, directed it to Daria and Alexander, any thoughts on, uh, uh, on lessons that we take out of this, uh, this war um, on intelligence reform? Daria, why don't you go first? Well, we actually have been working on the SBU, uh, it's State uh, uh, Intelligence Agency of Ukraine, SBU reform for quite long before a uh, large-scale invasion. And uh, uh, unfortunately, reform was not performed properly, but we were relying a lot on the NATO uh, leverage um, to say that, listen, we have to transform our intelligence agency. We have to cut the functions which are not natural for the intelligence agency, like investigating economic crimes and, and, and uh, doing some other stuff. Uh, which was in our intelligence agency, most of the corrupt stuff which happened there. And we have to focus on preventing war, and we, w we have to focus on our intelligence service preventing various security threats. So uh, this uh, slow pro process was happening, but we didn't finish it, unfortunately, before the large-scale invasion. And uh, uh, therefore, it's, it's one of the reasons why our intelligence service um, also didn't perform properly right uh, before the large-scale invasion and during large-scale invasion. We have amazing service uh, men and women in intelligence um, agency of Ukraine, but unfortunately uh, not all of them are. And many people who are still working there, they have to be cleaned up and then they have to be tested uh, for their um, uh, integrity uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's still on the way. Um, and I want to emphasize once again uh, that support of Ukrainian people, it's not only about constitution, that public support of society towards NATO integration is growing exponentially in Ukraine. So every month, uh, uh, the numbers in sociology are growing. 
it's I don't know probably it will be soon like 100% of support probably 99% of support so it means that people our Ukrainian society is ready to question Ukrainian officials on whether they done enough for the NATO integration and if NATO will say listen in order for the EU integration, your intelligence service must be reformed in a way to cut all these non-natural functions as it is in the NATO member states, then Ukrainian society gets the powerful argument to push for these reforms. Uh, it's just uh, uh, a, a response what to do next uh, in, in terms of the intelligence reforms and it's all linkage towards the NATO integration. Daria, very, very powerful, very powerful statement uh, about the demand from Ukrainians for reform, including intelligence reform, in order to get into NATO. Very, Alexander, anything to add? I will start with a personal story, how the large-scale invasion started for me. Uh, in 24th of February, someone called to my door approximately at 4 o'clock in the morning, and my first thought was that its security service came to search my house because I, for several years, work on reform of security service and become very annoyed uh, by, in, in different uh, visions how this, uh, uh, we have different visions with security service, how this reform has to be done. And um, our vision as a human rights defenders was that we have to transfer the Soviet inheritance state bodies which can be used as a tool against opposition in civil society to effective state body which can effectively identify and work with external threats. And we face with uh, three main challenges before large-scale invasion started in this uh, reform process. First, to convince that this reform has to be done because we was always told that security service has to be untouchable during the war because it's very difficult to reform the state security service when you, when you are in war. Uh, second, we try to uh, work on the legislative level to deprive security service from the KGB functions which, they, which unproportionally limits human rights and freedoms and which can be used with another goals uh, for which a security service aimed to work. And, um, and uh, third is uh, to ingrain in security service reform the human rights guarantees, like a, not just a motto that security service has to respect human rights, but concrete procedures, concrete um, uh, norms which can prevent from human rights violations or provide possibility to restore violated rights of people. And I would like to end this comment that um, the, the um, person from audience who asked this question told that he become aware that United States of America have to help Ukraine with security service reform after the war, if I quote rightly. But I do believe that we have to start it now. We have not to wait when the war will end, because if we want to win this war more quickly, we have to have effective 
um, intelligence. Thank you. Alexander, very good point about starting now. Um, and Daria made the point that the, that the support for SBU reform, for NATO accession, um, continues to go up. She said 99 to 100%. Now's the time to take advantage of that to make these hard reforms. Um, uh, and, and both of you have pointed out, uh, again, when I was there, we were talking about uh, uh, SBU reform. Um, and, uh, and it still is necessary. So you're exactly right. Now's, now's the time to do this. And Admiral. If I may, I'm talking about the issue of distinction between law enforcement and military. Yes. Yeah. You picking up on what you said, blending authority task information between law enforcement and, 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 and military. I think that's also what we discussed earlier here. Please. If I may have another history lesson and an example from Sweden. Excellent. Thank that's you. While you're here. Now we'll start in 1931 instead, way before the Cold War. But that is because we had in, in Sweden an event that's called the Ådalen shootings when the police called in military troops during a protest of union and labor union protest and, and several people got killed by, by military troops. And since then we had, had by law a clear distinction between what would be law enforcement tasks, authority and information and what would be military tasks, authority information. External threat, internal threat. Very clear distinction there between. But now with this new, much blurry, multifaceted threat, uh, hybrid threat, we realize that we can't have that clear distinction anymore when it comes to information. Task authority, of course, but information. We need to have better information sharing between law enforcement and military. Uh, and, and that has happened. And, and the important part here, I would say that this changes or in, uh, improvement when it comes to information sharing is subject to parliamentary decisions, lawmaking, oversight. We even have independent courts and agencies that monitor and safeguard that, this, uh, that the laws and regulation regarding information sharing is maintained. So there are instruments in place, and I think that's important because it's all about making sure that people, the population, has trust in the, in the mm -hmm. governmental agency and the government that their, their, their personal freedom is not uh, sort of diminished. Compromise. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you, sir. Jorgen, a quick comment? Just a quick tack on. Um, so, uh, you know, Daria and Alexander are exactly right that strong, healthy, accountable, transparent civilian institutions are kind of the solution for everything here, right? Because they help Ukraine win the peace coming out of the war. They help Ukraine set up for EU extension and NATO membership and all these other things. But they also close down the avenues by which Russia um, exploited Ukrainian society for so long, all of the corruption angles and all of the, the weak institutions that allowed Russia and its various agents to, to affect Ukrainian policies and dynamics. And so um, those, those strong, healthy, accountable institutions, are, you know, good governance is the solution to, to all problems here. And as Mara says, uh, contributes to resilience. That's the resilience that, that we're looking at. Right. Um, other questions in the room? Or, yes, sir. Sir, and then, okay, you got one. Okay. So there's good discussion on. And uh, your name, sir, is Tim Connor. Tim. And there's good discussions on NATO membership uh, application, should I say? And um, the reasons are very rational. However, we know that Russia's not going to just sit by and um, watch the NATO debate on this issue. So my question is. 
do you anticipate some sort of Erdogan kind of thing in within NATO, uh, perhaps by Russia giving certain incentives to NATO members to, uh, you know, fight this particular uh, entry? Oh, I would say surely uh, they're going to try, and I would say further that they'll fail. Um, that uh, my, my bet is uh, that uh, there won't be an Erdogan kind of a problem. There, there, there will be a debate. There's undoubtedly going to be a debate. Um, um, but again, Ukraine is going to be a very, it's going to be a security contributor uh, to NATO, I believe. And I think NATO will, will consolidate around that. But you're right, the Russians won't be happy. Um, um, and when they have lost this, uh, this war, uh, they may have, but others will be smarter on this than I. Uh, Daria, uh, Alexander, any, any thoughts on, uh, uh, on concerns about the Russian attitude toward uh, NATO membership for Ukraine? Daria, go first. Well, for sure, Russians will try their best to prevent that happening. Uh, but we should forget about uh, Russian... Uh, claims about their right to decide the future of Ukraine. And uh, Ukrainian people showed that it is in the hands of Ukrainian people to decide the future of Ukraine. And for this right, we are ready to die. And we are dying. Therefore, uh, whatever Russia will do, we will walk towards NATO, and I'm pretty sure we will successfully enter NATO. Personally, for myself, I'm given the time limit of eight years, because when my son is 18 years old, uh, I want him to serve into the NATO army of Ukraine. But it uh, hopefully happened much faster than in, in, in 10 years, in, in, in eight years. NATO Army will be will welcome your son um, uh, into this thing. Alexander, any any thoughts on on this? I really don't care about Russian feelings about uh, um, independent choice of Ukrainian people to enter NATO, and it will be sooner or later. Uh, good point. Totally agree, Marta. Yeah, I think from my my analytical point of view, yes. I guess, we didn't expect much more Russian attempts of interference when Sweden and Finland applied. Mm -hmm. We didn't really have that. Um, but so, and now for Ukraine, we're thinking, we're thinking about scenario of, you know, future when the war has ended. Uh, so the, the question, big question mark in my mind is also like, what, in what state is Russia going to be in terms of you know, military state, e econo economy, its uh, sort of political power? What is Russia going to look like afterward? That's a, a question that I have as well. But in the end, when it comes to NATO enlargement, it is really a question of uh, what is the decision of NATO member states in the yeah, end. It's a, in the first instance a decision for Ukraine, and second instance uh, for NATO to, to respond. Uh, exactly right. And, and the heart of the debate inside NATO when, when that time comes, and I hope it comes soon, the heart of the debate is, is NATO safer with Ukraine inside NATO or outside? And if it's outside, I would argue that that you know, continues to create uh, a, a, a challenge and an opportunity for Putin or whoever succeeds him to continue to, to attack Ukraine, which doesn't help NATO's security. So uh, I would hope that that 
the, 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 the debate when it comes will center on that question, and I'm pretty confident that NATO members would see that they are safer with Ukraine inside. <clears throat> Admiral, we won't ask you on, on, the, on the NATO question yet. No, no, but, but I can say oh, something. You got, oh, very pleased. Go ahead. Go ahead. No recommendations on, from NATO side. All but, right, all right. But let's pick up what you said, because, I mean, when we went down the path of, for NATO, uh, application for NATO membership, I mean, that was a huge change in Sweden's security policy. And there were talks in Sweden about uh, how would Russia react to this. And I thought, how would Russia react? What's, and then we have chosen this path. We've chosen to become members of NATO. And we anticipated, as you said, more of hybrid activities, more of threats, things like that. We haven't really seen it yet. Uh, see what happens in the future, but, but we, we think we anticipated more reactions from the Russian side. Yeah. I mean, they've been occupied in Ukraine. And, and that confirms that uh, this Russian attack on Ukraine is not about NATO. It's not about NATO. I, mean, uh, I think that's, that's exactly right. Very good question. Thank you, sir. Um, all right, right here. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Very quick question. Uh, my name is Anna Seneva. I have a civil society question. Okay. Um, and it's primarily probably to Mr. Uh, Jordan. Sorry, I didn't catch your last name. Jordan Andrews. Uh, yeah, Jordan Andrews. I just was wondering from your experience, both USIP and State Department, what would you advise for civil society organizations to do when this is over? Because I think there will be no shortage of religious organizations and other civil society groups to come and help and restore the country and flood resources and volunteers there. But how would you channel, best channel that? So I'm reluctant to speak when we have um, brilliant members of Ukrainian civil society with us. But I will say one thing, which is that one of the greatest strengths Ukraine has had going for it for many years is the, 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 the power of its civil society. It has such an active, um, you know, incredible, dynamic civil society, investigative journalists, all, all kinds of things that, that uh, you know, unfortunately some of its other neighbors who came out of that Soviet Union experience haven't quite yet you know, built up. And so um, I would hope and expect uh, that Ukrainian civil society, even though it right now is, is very focused on helping Ukraine win this war, uh, that uh, even while doing that, and certainly after the conflict, that Ukrainian civil society would go back to being the, the very effective, very um, vocal um, critics of the government and also um, helping to shape the reforms that are needed. So um, I, you know, civil society is one of the, the, the best things Ukraine has going for it. And um, I don't think they'll miss a beat once the war is over. They will go, go back to fulfilling that role of being a watchdog, um, helping the government through its reforms, but, but keeping an eye on things as well. And Jorgen, you're exactly right that uh, Daria and Alexandra represent um, uh, that critical voice. And will uh, thoughts on uh, civil society, uh, first Daria and then Alexandra. Alexandra. Again, I'm first. Next time, Alexandra will respond. To okay, okay. <laughs> actually, actually, okay. we're all going to get the one, last, uh, one last round here. Um, and you'll be last, uh, Daria. You'll be last. But go ahead on this okay, side. Okay. The difference between Ukrainian civil society before February 24, uh, 2022, and now is dramatic. Because uh, what... Uh, Jordan, Jordan explained, uh, Ukrainian civil society was strong for quite a long time, but uh, we, we had quite a lot of civil society organizations 
investigative journalists, but this was not all society. Now, everybody in Ukrainian society found its role, how to contribute to the victory efforts and how to be active and how to take responsibility for the future of the country. And this is the dramatic difference. It means that there is a huge, you know, grassroots network of initiatives which emerged after February 24. Somebody is uh, fundraising for drones for the army. Somebody is helping wounded. Somebody is helping relocated people. Even doctors, they are, you know, mobilizing themselves into various initiatives. On the local self-governments level, there are new leaders. So Ukrainian society significantly transformed within the last year. And to a certain extent, uh, it underwent a lot of hurdles, but it became stronger. So how to help even now and after the after we win the war is to build the horizontal networks with these uh, emerged leaders, emerged uh, civil society initiatives in various sectors, in advocacy sectors, in humanitarian sectors, in, uh, in, in, in other sectors, and uh, help rebuild Ukraine on the, on the horizontal levels. It, it could be school-to-school initiatives. It could be self-governance-to-self-governance initiatives, university-to-university initiatives, uh, U- Ukrainian hospitals, American hospitals initiatives. Uh, religious to religious organizations. So I would really encourage to build these horizontal networks now, uh, not wait until the victory, uh, and then reinforce uh, these uh, um, uh, networks uh, after the victory. Thank you. Daria. Uh, Alexandra? Alexandra? When we speak about civil society, we speak about power of ordinary people. And we all witnessed how during the large-scale invasion, when the international organization evacuated their personnel, ordinary people remained and start to do extraordinary things to defend the country, our freedom and democratic choice. And it became obvious that ordinary people who fighting for freedom and democracy are more powerful than even the second army in the world. And that is why, because ordinary people have a much more impact that they can even imagine. So now when we speak about fighting Russian aggression, I must admit that civil society in cooperation with state institutions do a lot to stop Russian aggression and to liberate Ukrainian territories and people who live there. But Ukrainian civil society have a much more ambition. Last year, a Lugana manifest was presented in Ukraine Recovery Conference in Lugana. And this was a signal from Ukrainian civil society to international partners that we want to take a responsibility for democratic transformation of Ukraine ourselves. So we don't want to transfer this responsibility just to Ukrainian politicians and state authorities. And I ask to take this signal seriously. I ask international partners to treat civil society of Ukraine as an equal partner. 
with, on the level with state bodies and not just consult with us, but to involve us in all process which connected with recovery and democratic transitions. I'm so glad you asked that question. That was a that was, <clears throat> gave us a great one. And um, I, I see now that I'm a minute over. Are we? Uh, all right. So uh, there are other questions here that I would love to get to. And uh, probably our panelists will stick around for two minutes afterwards. I'm glad to uh, talk to anyone afterwards. Let me, instead of asking for summaries, let me just thank people for this. This has been a very rich discussion. Um, <clears throat> Marta, Admiral, Jorgen, Daria, Alexandra, um, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your questions. Um, this, is a, this conversation about transition from victory to post-victory, from victory to peace um, with democratic values both during the, the fight um, and, and after the peace uh, is an important one, which we will continue to, to work on. Uh, thank you all very much for this opportunity in, this, in the context, again, of the Democracy Summit. This was a great, uh, uh, a great contribution. So thank you all very much for, for doing this. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.